Welcome to Jaffa Cakes for Proust. I am Tilted Isa. I am Gaddy Roger. And let us both wish you a happy new year. <laughs> it's a Hogmanay special, as promised. <laughs> because the last time we were here was Christmas. And while we took our traditional Christmas break, you may have noticed it's been quite a long Christmas break. We've been away for seven months. If you want to know the reasons, go to Mixcloud and find Jaffa Cake Jukebox. We go a little bit more into detail. But we're back. We're looking at popular culture, mainly the second half of the 20th century. If we can, we'll try and find little bits of Lost Britain. Everything is just the same as it ever was. But first, a word about Blue Apron. <laughs> I, for one, very much approve of this new arrangement. We did promise 2017 was going to be rock and roll year. Not exclusively, we have lots of non-pop topics lined up to talk about in the months ahead. But today we're going to kick things off looking at three British rock and roll movies of the 1950s. I'm actually not convinced about this rock and roll fad. I am not convinced it's going to hang around, and I'm also not convinced it's a good thing either. Well, that's the great thing. I mean, let's, let's start. First movie, Rock You Sinners, 1957. Some sources have it as 1958. Let's not fall out about that. And the film itself concerns the adventures of Johnny Lawrence, disc jockey on one of those light music programs. But it's not all Mantovani. There's some Madonna as well, to quote David Hamilton. Well, you're saying rock and roll being a fad. This is made at a time when rock and roll might well be a fad. Might have all blown over by the time 1959 comes round. This was the cheapest of the three movies we watched. This is supposedly the first British rock and roll film. Also known as Ungdom Med Ritmer. Who's that? Rocky Sinners. Oh, so it did get an international release. Of course, yes, we, it, got, it, it was in Denmark. We're not looking at Denmark, we're looking at Denmark Street. Is there a nicer word than exploitation that I can use? I suppose you could say it is jumping on the bandwagon drawing heavily upon the artists of the time and wrapped around it is a relatively flimsy premise. Produced by EJ Fancy, who was very much a quick turnaround guy. EJ Fancy gave Michael Winner his first job, I believe. Ah. In the movies, anyway. So, yeah, rock and roll, to be responded to properly, it really needs somebody who's a little bit quick and dirty. Get in there, get something the kids might want to see and spend money on, and... Doesn't matter, don't have to take time over it, just get some product out. And that's what I like about these things, is that also it's Britain talking to itself. I don't think there was too much of a desire to sell this far and wide. No, this is not as parochial as Television Southwest's opening show or anything like that, but yeah, it's not really making a lot of concessions for international distribution either. Actually, I'll say that there's another thing in here. Another one of these new frightening things that's put the fear of modernity or the exhilaration of modernity felt in the new Elizabethan age. Independent television. I know it's been two years, but we've got two ideas here, which is it's about a radio guy who wants to break into television. And that kind of makes sense that there are now more television jobs to go around. There are more television studios in the country than there were before. And then the second thing, it is about rock and roll, this new music that's come from America. And he finds a way of putting them both together. And I don't think it's really any big spoiler to say he wins in the end through the combination of naked desire to get out of the ghetto that is radio 
into the bright lights of television and his interest in rock and roll. Strange thing is that he does this by effectively putting on a stage show, which doesn't really have any televisual elements of any kind, but still manages to secure a television series out of it. Okay, you said the people they got in this, it draws upon many artists. I'm not sure I'd heard of any of them. Oh, no, I don't know who any of them are. I just know there's artists in there. It's not Tommy Steele and Marty Wilde. So that makes it feel just a little bit more underground almost. This is true. I mean, okay, so we've got Tony Crombie, and we've got Art Baxter. You're going to have to tell me about them because I don't know who they are. But you listen to music and you know things about it. So who are these people? No, these people were all new on me. I'd, I'd had a look. I mean, somebody's actually put together a kind of quasi soundtrack album for this film. So they have their devotees. And who's Dickie Bennett? I have no idea. You know what? I think we're being a little bit unfair. This has been made with at least a certain degree of care. This could have been a heck of a lot worse. You've got a nicely balanced cast, really. You have the boy, the couple A and couple B. And I'm going to say couple B have a bit more personality. Jackie Collins. As a second job for EJ Fancy. So she must have distinguished herself. Or as Matthew Sweet said in a documentary about British movies, she mustn't have asked for a raise. <laughs> I just want to know, where have I seen Colin Croft? So Colin Croft is playing Pete, who's Johnny's friend. He's kind and of like the Donald O'Connor of the group. Yes, yes, but I've he's, seen him he's somewhere wacky before. And he's more willing to make a fool of himself. And sometimes it's like, why isn't he the hero? <laughs> yeah. He'd I like this guy. He'd be a really good host of the show. I've seen him in something before. I've checked his IMDb biography. I can't place him. And it's driving me bonkers because I've definitely seen him in something before. And oh, I don't know. But he's got a lot of personality, hasn't he? Yeah, they're sitting there in their DJ booth and they're not telling you what the radio station is or the frequency or anything like that. So we don't know. I mean, they could be pirates for all we know. I think they might be working for Luxembourg, but you don't necessarily want to be promote. Well, I suppose really, you don't want to be promoting anybody's interests too much. And also, do you really want to be doing something in the grey market like Luxembourg? So you just say, Johnny is a DJ. What is his friend's job there? Is he sort of like his engineer? He's DJ's friend, which I think is the official job title. I see. <laughs> but he's not the producer because the producer is also there as well. Yeah, he's behind the glass. But he's the guy who knows about rock and roll. Maybe that's why Johnny keeps him around. But the thing is, I mean, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but I'm going to. There were radio hosts early on who really didn't run the desk, did they? So they would have had technical operators. So your man, Johnny Lawrence, he has this wonderful idea. Well, okay, two things about this. One... No, hang on a minute. Got... What, was the, what was the rejection letter? He gets a rejection letter from a television company. We don't really know which. But what was the idea he submitted? We don't know, do we? This is all about him tying together two things. Well, okay, I'm going to hypothesize that he sent off a letter and, he, and he'd written in this letter, he said, hey, dudes, if you want to you know, get with it, you should have a show with all these modern acts and what have you. But... Uh, Without actually being able to visualise it, the, the station has just replied and said, aye, whatever. So what he's done... But no, he, he is... doesn't really know that much about rock at the well, that's where his friend. that's where his friend comes in. Yeah, so, so, so we his, don't, well, th- I'm, I'm guessing that the idea he initially submitted was not the idea that he ended up going with. The idea that he initially submitted was crisscross quiz, and they replied and said, thank you very much for the suggestion, however, we've already created it. Naked Jungle. 
Sin on Saturday. (laughs) So there's this nice friction, though, between rock and roll is the thing, and also it is 1950s ration. They still have rationing by 57, didn't they? Some things must have still been on the ration. Hang on a minute. Just hold that thought. Hang on. Joy, sunlight. I want a medal for not mentioning Sueys. So what I mean is this initial audience. I mean, some of these shots that they go out dancing, and this is just somebody's taken a camera along. It's not staged. They've taken a camera along, taken their actors too, and just filmed an actual rock and roll night. And they're all dressed like it's the 1950s. They're all fairly elegant, buttoned-up people. Okay, give us a high high jingle, if you will. Ping, ping, ping. Although rationing formally ended in 1954, cheese production remained depressed for decades afterwards. That's why they had to have the Cheer Up Cheese campaign in the 1980s. Where you're encouraged to cheer up cheese. <laughs> Do you want to mention Suez? It happened. Petrol rationing was briefly reintroduced in late 1956 during the Suez crisis. And advertising of petrol on the recently introduced ITV was banned for a period. So look, the, the moment this really all boils down to where you see this odd clash between 50s Britain and rock and roll is when... It temporarily turns into a musical, a normal musical. I mean, I'll give it to the musical because they go out and they see a lot of acts singing, but it actually turns into that bit where a character just bursts into song and nobody thinks it's weird. When they go to the record shop, which I'm going to say, I'd like to go to that record shop. It looks like a nice place to hang out. So anyway, they go to the record shop to teach Johnny about rock. And Colin, can't remember his character's name, Colin starts singing. And also, hey, not only the first rock and roll movie, but also immediately we're talking about drugs. So he sings this song that starts, one for the message, two for the blow, three for the benzedrine. As he's beginning his song, though, he hands his cigarette in a holder to Johnny. (laughs) It's that moment. I'm about to sing a rock song about drugs. Please hold my holded cigarette. (laughs) And that's just that moment, that spark. Do you think it's because Colin was an Australian actor? He's a little bit more free. There should be more of this, actually, in the film. Because once they've established that characters can break the fourth wall and burst into song, they should do it all the time. But yeah, it's not a, it's not a musical, per se. Yeah, it, it, it goes back to the music has to be part of the plot. But rock and roll is so new, they don't even have enough rock and roll songs. And so they just have to <laughs> add the words rock and roll to a different genre. So they go to a cafe and they sing... The rock and roll calypso. Aye, 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 you gotta rock, rock, rock and roll. I like to think that that guy is still there. Every new genre that comes along, he sings a calypso about. It's a punk calypso? Yeah, vaporwave calypso. It is kind of over, but... So what, what's what's in now? Gotta be, be as up-to-date as possible. Maybe it's calypsos. <laughs> Maybe he's having to sing a calypso calypso. We have rock and roll blues later on. Did you read those clippings I sent you? You know that I didn't. I sent you some clippings. I forgot. I, I forgot they were there. Okay. Where, the, where I, I wanted. They had I wanted a professor to... in the Manchester Guardian writing a, an article about rock and roll, and the first mentions in the Guardian, at least, are around about 1957. And then they get a letter coming in the following week saying, basically appalled by this guy writing so warmly about rock and roll, saying rock and roll is just. Actually, an argument that's still around. It's interesting to see this argument so early. Rock and roll's just cleaned up rhythm and blues. They dismiss rock and roll as being moronic, 
and effectively just something sold to the lowest common denominator and he gets sniffy about this guy describing Bill Haley as one of the masters of rock and roll. I'm still not entirely sold on the 1950s slash 60s being a good thing. So I'm going to sort of side with this guy and say, could we not just have stuck with, say, Glenn Miller? Yeah, but that's the thing. This guy is saying that R&B was really the exciting development, the real exciting injection of ideas. He's dismissive of rock and roll. He thinks it's moronic. Uh, he thinks it's just something that's been cleaned up to sell to gullible, foolish teenagers. But isn't that always the way? When something happens that's sort of underground and gets a bit of a cult following, eventually somebody jumps on the bandwagon and popularises it and does sort of clean it up and makes it nice and simple and easy to package and promotes it to the masses. And that's the point. It's exactly like you just said just now. Oh, Vaporwave's had its day. Now, okay, it turns out that Vaporwave didn't have its own Pete Waterman moment, but like anything which is remotely successful and has potential in, in, in any kind of underground scene eventually is going to become mainstream. Yes. So? Why couldn't we have just stuck with Glenn Miller, is what I'm saying? Because, you know, I would have loved that. I mean, why, why have we got like a new generation of Sid Lawrence and Doc Severinsen and what have you? Why is that not still a thing now? You missed the swing revival over here. So one of the points I was wanting to make about Britain's response to rock and roll is that I think the kickback in the UK was mildly different from the kickback in the US. Because in the US, it is first and foremost, I think, black music. That's what it's seen as. They had separate charts. There's definitely an element of that in the UK, but I think part of the, the UK's reaction would be also it's american music and there's that whole thing in the 1950s britain is not at its best and yet it's also fairly ecstatic at having survived the second world war so there's that thing should we be more like america should we not can we have a little bit can we the idea i think of putting our own spin on it is the stuff of a madman's dreams that's kind of me trying to edge into our next film the six five special well, now we've moved on from the promoter to effectively the fans, but also the fans who are trying to get into the business. Because we've seen it from, from one side, now we're seeing it from the other. You see, the, the, in the US, really, the face of rock and roll, the point it burst through into the mainstream, and as, as people said, it needed a white face putting to it for mass consumption in the US. And that was Elvis Presley. And... We could talk at length. I think, I think there's a lot of innocence in Elvis Presley that some people don't quite get. But to the people at that time, there was also this raw sexuality, the way he moved, the way he curled his lip and the way he shook his hips. It was a little bit shocking, just as we in the UK had Jim Dale. Hey. Who we see in the <laughs> 6 Five special, Jim Dale, rock and roll star. Now, we did actually agree, didn't we, that there was one line in this which we wanted to see introduced to all films in the future, which I think was, <laughs> you heard what Jim Dale said, and that, that should still be in use today. It should appear in everything. What's this new film I said just now? Was it Baby Driver? Is that what it's called? I hope okay. that appears in there somewhere, because it must, surely. When Indiana Jones, right, he's clinging on to something or whatever, you know, he shouts, you heard what Jim Dale said, and that just causes, you know... That would have been a better moment in Batman versus Superman rather than this whole moment about the fact that Batman and Superman's mothers had the same first name. They could have just, Superman could have just look down at Batman and said, you heard what Jim Dale said. 
Pete Murray somewhere around about here. <laughs> right, so roommates, right? Yes, she's singing in the bath with the bathroom door open. And then she gets out of the bath and... Are they trying to sneak a sex angle into this? Well, because we've got this bit that, you know, we see her leg. Young boys of the 1950s. She's not wearing anything if we pan the camera up. <laughs> leg! Look at the leg! And then a friend gets changed and she's wandering around in her underwear. This is a U rating, by the way. We had the drugs and the rock and roll in Rocky Sinners. Now we have the sex. But one of the things that also interested me is rock is not just the only thing that teenagers are interested in. So we've got a bit of the trad jazz skiffle later on and this kind of pop opera thing that's kind of vanished hasn't it it's not even something people talk about well it made a bit of a comeback under ben elton didn't it was that rhyming slang i'm not keep it on the ben elton is a monkey <laughs> there was kind of a boom in crossover artists in the 90s and the 2000s but people don't talk about those kind of tenors and sopranos what I'm saying is our lead character is in that realm, but placed into a film that's kind of about rock. I mean, she's thrilled to meet Jim Dale. Oh, yeah. It's not kind of like, well, I'm not interested in that because I sing crossover opera in the Beth. She should have insisted when they gave her the spot on Six Five Special. She she should have said, well, I only actually sing in the bath. So that's <laughs> how I'm going to expect this on the night. No, one thing I hadn't actually spotted about this is that this is written by Norman Judas, who was the original writer of the Carry On film. And unlike Rocky Sinners, we've got people on this that we've actually heard of. And lots of them, funnily enough. Okay, you said that Rocky Sinners didn't have much plot. This has no plot. Well, really. it's got a bit, this has a pl- it? Right, so you're, you're going to have to help me with the character names. You've got the IMDb open. So here's the plot. Anne and Judy are roommates. Anne has a nice singing voice. Judy says, you should go down to the smoke. Show everybody what you've got. You've already shown me everything you've got. <laughs> I, know, I know the bathroom door doesn't have a lock on it, but there is an actual door, you know? Anyway, so Judy says, go down to London and try and make it in the big time. So they get on a train and it's full of stars and that's it. And that's it. She she gets on the six five special. Which I know. There's more to it than that. You've missed out massive chunks of the plot. Plot? What plot? They get on the train. It's full of stars, and they get on the six five special. No, 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 no. You're you're racing through this. You've you've cut out all the the the. What, what's the, the again? Chapters. Did you watch a different version? For, no, did you watch right. M Night Shyamalan's? No, I hang, hang on. Six hang five on. special. Hang on a minute. Right, they get on the train. Okay, look who it is. It's Jim Dale. That's right? not plot, though, is it? No, no, just... it is, no, it is plot. It is plot because you you're missing all the subtleties, right? So first of all, I said, that, "My God, it's full of stars." To quote twenty ten. First of all, Anne is worried about being able to sing whatever, right? And so Judy says to Jim Dale, "Hey, Jim Dale, is it true that if like you're yeah, really if you good just at- start saying every character name and, and listing every single action?" Yeah, I'm sure you can make it sound like Inception. These are key plot points, right? So, for example, they go along, and who is it they see? They see uh, John Danworth and Cleo Lane. Okay, not much happens there, but they have a bit of a sing-song. The two key bits on the train, one is they find themselves sitting next to Finlay Curry, and it's himself who talks around, because she wasn't going to do it. She was going to say, oh, no, no, this isn't for me at all. And he gives his little sort of monologue and changes her mind. 
And then the key Radically bit... different from Richard Vernon and the Beatles. Talking about. <laughs> no, this film has no antagonist. That's true. Yes. The wise old man is wise and old. I wasn't entirely sure I understood what his point was. He seemed to come from two different directions. And I say, thought he was being cantankerous for the sake of it. He seemed to be... Yes, yeah. I, I get that sense too. That he was saying, nonsense, you'll never make it, but you should try and you will, but you won't. I didn't and did. So you shouldn't <laughs> should do the same thing too or not. <laughs> and so after they've been talked around by Stanley Unwin, then they go and nudge Pete Murray, who is asleep, and he perks up with, uh, I think it's like an espresso or something like that. There's a lot of talk about coffee, a lot of talk about coffee, and yet no names visible. So I was thinking that this is prime sort of area for product placement, but there wasn't any. But anyway, yeah, she sings, and Pete Murray's like, oh, you know, she can sing. So there you have it, and then she's on the show. So you've missed all of those key details there. You see, pay close attention because all the action's happening on the train and it's so subtle you could miss it. It's so subtle it's not even there. And we haven't even mentioned Mike and Bernie. But that's it. It's basically train full of superstars. Anne and Judy get on the train and they keep walking through and in every carriage they encounter somebody who is famous. All these famous people who are on the train, are any of them actually on the 65 special when we get to the studio? No, that's true. But that means that when they do get to be in in the studio for the 6-5 special, you can have even more stars. Let's just quickly talk about the show, the 6-5 special. I think it was the first British rock show, but there was a certain clash. Jack Good wanted it to be just that, music. Music for the kids, and there was a bit more of a sense at the BBC that it should be something more of a magazine programme, and it should give them useful things. There was a rocking vicar in there somewhere to show that the church was all fine with this. But anyway, Jack Good. Ran off to ABC, produced Oh Boy, and I think that pretty much finished the 6-5 special. Made it to the end of 1958, and that was it. So that's the show they're excited about. It's As far as this film is concerned, it's the only outlet for youth and their music. Are there any films based upon Jazz 625? <laughs> Going down the, on the train, and who should we bump into? It's Louis Armstrong. And who's this over here? Blimey, it's Acker Bilk. And then they go and audition in front of Steve Race and get in the show. That'd be fabulous. I remember what I was saying about how rock and roll's still completely in hock to America in some ways. Maybe we should have watched the Tommy Steele story. Maybe. Well, we'll talk about Joe Brown another time. But it's Jim Dale singing about being on a train to El Paso or coming from El Paso. This train's been through El Paso at some point. He has to sing about the US. Well, I thought that was interesting. 24 hours from Peebles. <laughs> but no, you're, you're right. I mean, yeah, it, it doesn't translate well when you try and glamorise Britain in the same way as you're trying to glamorise the States. That doesn't come across too well whenever that kind of thing is attempted. But I, I don't really get the impression. There's not too much of that really going on here. I mean, there's, there's not really, like you say, I mean, I'm sure there's other films and other artists and what have you, which might give you this sort of vibe. But I didn't really get the impression that there was any sort of knockoff Elvis really trying to steal the show here. One thing is we do see two black performers singing a song apiece, but they're kitchen staff. Read into that what you will, but it's one hell of an oversight. 
Yeah, it, it's gotten around the issue, isn't it? It's, it's being sort of careful and cautious and what have you and trying to be inclusive, but also not trying to sort of break any boundaries at the same time. Have you got anything to say about the performers on the 6-5 special itself? Lonnie Donegan, brilliant. Because he is, isn't he? Lonnie Donegan's fabulous. Have you looked at the trailer? I haven't. It's really interesting in the trailer when it's just showing you person after person after person. So here is Diane Todd, who is our lead character, singing It's a Wonderful Thing to be Loved, which is very much sort of easy listening with an operatic tinge. Here's Dickie Valentine singing The King of Dixieland. Quite diverse lineup, isn't it, really, when you think about it in terms of musical styles? Yeah. Well, that's one of the things, and it's something we'll talk about next time as well when we watch the movie It's Trad Dad. That point where there are a number of different things competing for the youth market, and they, they all, for a moment, appear to be equal. And Trad Dad's actually as late as 62. It's that little forgotten period just before the Beatles. But anyway, so we had Dickie Valentine, blah, blah, blah. Cut to this point, and they show a bit of Lonnie Donegan seeing the end of Jack of Diamonds, and it really is bah, fiery stuff. It's a really fascinating shock to the system. It's a difficult thing to understand. I know that was skiffle, but it's a difficult thing sometimes to understand rock and roll of that time in context. The idea of any of this is shocking music. There is one way. I once was on Spotify, and I spent about an hour and a half listening to Harper's Bazaar, a vocal group. Sardonic, easy listening. They, they all sing like very nice boys in college sweaters, but their songs are written by people like Harry Nielsen and Randy Newman. So there's always this little sarcastic edge, but it's very, very much soft, easy listening. Anything I tried to listen to after that for the first few minutes that was even mildly rocking sounded like three different Motorhead songs at once. <laughs> so it's an exercise. See how long you can listen to 50s Easy Listening and then right at the end of that, listen to Tutti Fruity by Little Richard. Pow! <laughs> There's nothing in here which is going to frighten the horses, is there? It must have at the time, though. It must have. Rock You Sinners was, this is what's happening. It's, I know it's happening to sensible, rather tweedy young people, but this is what's happening. This is the underground. This is a thing where our hero has to have it explained to him. It's bursting through the cracks everywhere. Rock and roll is happening, and it's definitely alarming people. The 6-5 special is the point where it's beginning to be brought into the mainstream. The BBC will bring you rock and roll, but this is the film you can go and see with your parents, maybe. You made the point when we were watching this, and the same applies to Cool for Cats as well. You've got Pete Murray, Josephine Douglas, Kent Walton. In a way, they come across as sort of teachers in charge of the school disco. You can just explain Cool for Cats was Associated Rediffusion's first foray, I believe into a rock and roll show. We'll talk about that a few months from now, I think. But you've got presenters who are as at ease with presenting, say, like a feature on the Tonight programme or something like that, or the holiday programme. They're non-threatening. And in a way, they are the in-betweeners, really, aren't they? Because they're presenting this show for the kids with all these scruffy musicians. Well, actually, no, the musicians aren't scruffy at all. They're all very well turned out. And... They are the sort of safe pair of hands who are in charge of all of this and going to make sure that it doesn't get out of hand. And therefore, Janice's dad doesn't get upset. Um, but <laughs> we should just explain, Janice's dad is basically who we refer to 
Janus and Janus's dad are mythological. But they're who we refer to whenever we see anybody on top of the pops that we think is in any way slightly racy or subversive or anything like that at all. What does Janice's dad think of this? It's interesting, isn't it? The, the way that it's presented, and even well into the 1980s, for example, but the, the Top of the Pops reruns that are on just now on BBC Four, you've still got people like, for example, say Simon Bates presenting the shows. And Peter Powell is like somebody that, you know, you wouldn't mind if your daughter brought him home one evening. He's, you know, nice, you know, well-turned-out, polite young man. This isn't punk. And even when punk happened, then... Punk didn't really happen on things like Top of the Pops. Would you say it's a walled garden, in a way? From our point of view, Top of the Pops looks relatively safe, but you still have Phil Oakey and his frightening makeup. I was scared of him when I was a kid. (laughs) Even something like the 6-5 special, there will have been things in it that disquieted people, even if it didn't necessarily shock them. Where's this going to lead But it is interesting that the most... Shall we say shocking? I'll use the word again, fiery. The most fiery performance is a man with an acoustic guitar singing an American folk song. Skiffle is really interesting that it happens years before the folk revival happens in the US. It's still in hock to the United States because Rock Island Line, Grand Cooley Dam. When Lonnie Donegan sings about British concerns, my old man's a dust man. (laughs) It's interesting how easily he could transition to that stuff. And we do have that first wave of those stars. They go showbiz so quickly, and they can. Is it because mainstream culture has watered them down, or is it because British culture wasn't all that disquieted? It was very easy to just suddenly accept the rock and roller as the light entertainer. I have no answer to these questions, but that's fine. Okay, so I'm just going to sort of hypothesize here. If you're part of this new wave and you're obviously you're attracting a crowd, you've got a cult crowd and, you know, a promoter suddenly catches your eye and promoter starts to say, you know, you're wasting your time, you know, doing these little sort of gigs here and there. You almost should be getting your message out there to the the masses and what have you. And before you know it, you're going to see presumably a sharp increase in your income and getting a lot of attention from a lot of adoring fans. And it would be fair to say that that combination would be sort of quite attractive and addictive. And so when then somebody then suggests, be it the promoter or anybody else suggests, well, if you just want to sort of smooth those sort of rough edges of your act, and maybe that particular band member there who is sort of turning up late for our rehearsals and what have you, and maybe got caught, you know, with a like a funny cigarette in, in his hand the other day and what have you, if we could just lose him and and, and just, I know this isn't your usual kind of number that you would normally do, but it's, you know, maybe we just try this because, you know, there's a very popular songwriter we've, we've, we've got under contract here on the record label. D- does this make sense, what I'm saying? It does, but I think that's the more obvious story to tell. And I always like looking at the opposite of that, which is, yes, there were rough edges being smoothed off for the sake of commerciality and the acceptable face of the mainstream is the Beatles, putting them in nice suits and bow at the end of every number, Brian Epstein's influence. But I also think that there was just something in the way the culture was set up that they were very easily absorbed. They weren't quite as dangerous as their American counterparts, or they weren't seen as quite as dangerous as their American counterparts. 
it is six of one, half a dozen of the other, but the six of one is what people are looking at, and that's why I'm trying to push the half a dozen of the other side of things. We, we touched upon it earlier on, but how important is not just the end of rationing, but also just generally post-war Britain, how important is that factor in this? Are people now more willing to try new things? People are generally happier and have a sort of broader outlook on things. There is a different sort of feel in the air in, in comparison with previous decades. The welfare state, is that what you want me to say? Is it? No, not necessarily welfare state, but I'm thinking in terms of... Yeah, I'm thinking of that thing of we compare John Lennon to Doss about in art school. Yeah, but also generally speaking, if people are happier and there's less austerity and less in the way of harsh conditions around, then people are probably going to be more receptive to not just trying out things, but also people are going to be more receptive to entertainment in general. So ITV comes along. might be overstating how shocking rock was in the US it's still nagging in the back of my mind and maybe that's part of the US was now top nation was deciding who it was where was its place in the world what were the threats that needed to be neutralized to maintain the status and the UK was just we're alive we made it and something new is being built because the thing before it was blown to bits by the enemy. Sometimes it's like it's not a case of institutions are being torn down by elements within our society. This is nonsense I'm talking about. I just like, finish this idea. It's partially that thing is they didn't pull down the grand old symbol of our national stability. That was blown to pieces, and the fact they've built something in its place is actually quite encouraging. Uh, the US did not have the Blitz. I'm, I'm not saying one approach is superior, but it just there's this point where the UK gets hit with this massive, shocking culture that changes everything in its path. I used to work on a magazine on tape, and our demographic was, I think, sort of maybe people in their late 50s, early 60s, up to people in their 80s. And that sounds normal. Retirees, seniors, pensioners. But occasionally, when I'm trying to pull together from different sources the stuff we're going to talk about, I I saw this odd gulf because we had the last generation to grow up without rock and roll in their youth, to the generation that first had it, and then the generation that had it normally, and that the difference between a 60-something and an 80-something... They had different wants and needs. So I had to be careful with tone. I had to try and make everything sound reasonably comforting because I didn't want the older end of my listenership thinking that, oh, by the way, we're clearing out all the Glenn Miller records and we're bringing in Beatles records. Even in the (laughs) 21st century, that was a consideration. So that's what I'm saying. Rock and roll is this massive thing. Maybe it is possible to overstate its influence, but I think it's a colossal fault line in western culture and britain got hit with it at a time when it was on its knees and just getting back up and within a few years we sold it back to the u.s how did that happen it's not just the two-word answer the beatles because how did the beatles happen what was the thing that allowed them 
And they're in that little situation where they're a little bit surprising and scary, but there is that possibility that they, yeah, they could go completely mainstream. There was an advert the other day. This is being recorded at the beginning of July. There was an advert on TV here the other day for a 4th of July celebration. Get your tickets now. Because there's going to be fireworks, probably going to be hot dogs. And as part of this was, and we're going to have a Beatles tribute band performing the entire Sgt. Pepper's album on the 4th of July. That was just hilarious to me. Because what could be more American than time for tea and meet the wife? <laughs> the large video screens will be displaying for a heart. <laughs> so that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this whole idea, because we talk about the British invasion, but why did it happen? Why didn't we just push it right back into the sea instead of took it and transformed it? And you got a song that goes, Hello, Mrs. Jones, how's your Burt's Lumbago? A couple of thoughts spring to mind. One is the view that you often hear being expressed, particularly in 60s and 70s, but you still get it today as well, about the fact that people in the Second World War were fighting for freedom. Now, that's a very, very broad sort of concept and quite often will be applied to things perhaps uh, in, in a way that tries to sort of guilt trip the party which is trying to suppress whatever it is that they don't like about you know modern Britain and so on. But it's probably fair to say that there is a general air of, you know, we've been through this hellish time and we've come out of the other end victorious. And so, you know, now's the time for us to, you know, spread our wings and, and see what more we can achieve. You know, we can all work together, we've got common purpose and what have you. So I think that that particular sort of atmosphere, I think probably lends itself quite well to people being accepting of new ideas, blow out the cobwebs of the past. Another thing that springs to mind as well, when you're saying about, you know, how we deliver the Beatles to the world and so on, I mean, that's what Britain did and, and, and still has today in 2017 with all the Brexit talk and what have you, it's still got ambitions to be the world's great exporter. I mean, that's, that's what Britain was. So it's natural in a way that we could take something from the States and then craft our own version of it and then send it straight back out there. In, in a way, even though it's a modern sound, it's a modern medium and so on, the actual mechanics of it, if you, if you put it like that, is perfectly in keeping with the, the British psyche. But one little thing as well about how easily rock and roll music was absorbed into British culture. I think television's probably got a lot to do with this. And the onset of commercial television, exactly when it happens in 55. Because, okay, we're used to having, say, American films in the cinema. That's one thing. Having American records played on the radio is another. But the fact that now people in the home, and particularly obviously, let's be honest about it, we're not necessarily talking about a UK-wide phenomenon here. We're talking about the big cities and specifically London, as far as where a lot of this is emanating from. So the fact that people can now see Bill Haley and see Elvis Presley, they're not just distant figures, they're not just photographs in the newspaper. It's almost like suddenly they're in your own home. And that gives you a certain sort of acceptance in one way. It also means that everybody is seeing them at the same time. So everybody's talking about them the next day and so on. And the medium is perfect for then being able to just slip in there. And that particular person's record is available on Monday. 
you know, you've got this mass medium and it really is a mass medium. There's no sort of fragmentation as you, you get nowadays. And so, yeah, I think the, 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 all, all the little key bits and pieces, are, they're all there. Everything has just come together nicely for this to have happened. And if it had tried to happen 10 years earlier, it would have been too early. It's all lies though, isn't it? That's Alex Jones and Jesse Ventura's area. I don't get involved in that kind of thing. No, it's Wolf Mankiewicz's area. I was trying to smooth Pebble Mill style transition to Expresso Bongo from 1959. Well, now here's the thing, because we've been talking about how you know good all this is and how everybody's all sort of willing to accept it. And pretty much in the first two films that we've seen, like you said, there's no antagonists in these films. Whereas this is a, a rather different animal, isn't it? This is much more cynical. I picked this because it was made in the 50s. Cliff Richards in it, and I knew there was a lot of singing. And then I watched it and I was quite taken aback. This is really a cynical... This is nihilistic, in fact. I'm trying to, Are there any institutions that don't get held up for mockery and get found wanting? Everything is lies. Everything is hucksters and hustlers. So does this still count as jumping on the bandwagon? No, this is jumping on... The statue, taking a plus the statue of Cliff Richard, throwing it on the ground and stamping on it. Now, Cliff's not really playing himself, if you know any biographical details. But on the surface, he is. Cliff was 19. He's playing a teenage boy who is turned into a superstar and that the system that is required to do that is fundamentally corrupt and... It's taking young gullible fools, squeezing all the money out of them and casting them aside or being cast aside by them. They learn the game better. So am I, am I wrong here? No, I think that's fair enough. In a way, I, I'd only add that it does feel still that it's ever so slightly jumping on the bandwagon in as much as because of the subject matter and the way that the subject matter would be presented, say, on a poster. And so you could look at this and think, oh, you know, hey, it's well, just you know, I guess rollers. I fell for it, didn't I? And then there's music on Cliff Richard, so this is going to be, you know, a nice musical. And yeah, it's only when you start to get into it that you, you realise this is something rather different. I, I would actually really like to see some publicity material. I'd love to see some publicity material in terms of, say, newspaper adverts, or if Cliff Richard was, was plugging this on TV or radio at the time, and just see how this is sort of presented, because it doesn't strike me as something where Cliff could go on no Gordon's lunchbox. Did he ever appear on that? So if he, <laughs> if he suddenly turns up on there and says, yes, I've got this nice new puppy film coming out and it's good musical fun for all the family. So come along and clap your hands and don't be afraid to get up and, and dance around in the cinema or what have you. Because if that's how it was sold, then, then that would be incorrect. He did appear on Tinker and Tucker with Auntie Jean Morton and was referred to as Uncle Cliff Richard. Fantastic. I don't know exactly what year that was. Is there a danger of this film falling between two stools? Because it's not necessarily something that's going to appeal to Cliff's fans. Uh, I mean, if you're an absolute hardcore Cliff fan, you're going to go and see him no matter what he's doing. But in terms of the audience for his concerts, it's not necessarily going to go down too well with them. At the same time... I think his audience in 1959 is just glad to see him. But if you're that fellow in the Daily Mirror advert who says, you know, can you stop this sort of thing? Then if you hear there's a film about rock and roll, you're not going to go and see that, are you? Well, it's based on a West End hit. So if you're dead against rock and roll, yes. But if you think it's a fad, I think word can get round that this is mocking the fad. It's a satirical comedy. 
So Lawrence Harvey is playing a character and he's a Soho huckster and he's kind of a little agent. He's an agent, but he's not really in the big time. And his principal client is his girlfriend, who is, what would you call her? Because she's not a stripper, because you couldn't really put on stripping in those kinds of places. Strip clubs had to be private membership. This was a place you could walk in. So it's an equivalent of the windmill. Is she an artistic dancer? Yes. Can't say exotic. That's too crazy. And then he becomes aware that kids are into rock and roll. He's going to buy salt beef sandwich at the deli. And the deli owner is getting a jukebox in. So he said, oh, I can get you a real person, blah, 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 blah. And then goes looking for a real person that he can sell to this deli owner. And get this kid in, he'll sing, and the kids will come and flock. And he finds Herbert Rudge, played by Cliff Richard. And he's mainly interested in playing the bongos. He just does a bit of singing, but he's, he's more interested in the drums. And he's talked into becoming a singing star on behalf of Lawrence Harvey's character, Johnny Jackson who signs him up. He, he tries to get agreement from the parents. He doesn't get agreement from the parents, but he signs a contract with a very generous 50% <laughs> commission for himself. Perfectly fair. 50-50. What's wrong with that? Straight in the middle. And that's it. It's the rise of Bongo Herbert, the partial rise of Johnny Jackson, showing the kids how the sausage is made. Now, this film was good for our favourite habit of name spotting. Got a manner of people. You've got well for a start. You had Ava Sponage, who is Mrs. Rudge. She turns up as Rigsby's wife in Rising Damp, and also in in Loving Memory as well. Quite a few episodes of that. Esma Cannon. Hey, it's uncredited. As is Bert Quogue. He's just there. He's just crossing the street or something. I didn't. I didn't actually spot herself. Susan Hampshire apparently is in this. Uh, she was. Is it Ambrosine Philpott plays the personal assistant to Dixie Collins? Well, she plays her daughter. Ah, right, okay. Yeah, she's uncredited, but she actually has several lines. She's amazed by Bongo, and Bongo is barely noticing her. And of course, we have, as himself, Gilbert Harding. And he's presented with basically panorama-type They call program. it Cosmorama in the <laughs> film. Yeah, that's portrayed in a cynical way as well. Everything uh, is portrayed in a cynical way. So we have... Patrick Cargill as a psychiatrist. With as, as he's actually credited a tick. as a psychiatrist. In the particular habit that programs such as this and newspapers as well had at that time of simply, rather than actually having a person's name, simply having their profession title. So a doctor writes, for example. We have a trendy vicar. I can't remember what he mentions, but he mentions some trend that he's pushing as part of the youth social group, and he'll no doubt allow there to be a Bongo Herbert club. And religion gets dragged into it when Johnny Jackson decides that that's the next big thing for Bongo to get caught up in is do something a little bit religious about motherhood, but Bongo hates his mother. So we have him singing this treacly song, The Shrine on the Second Floor, and we have this choir behind him. This light just suddenly hits and there's a whole bunch of choir boys I should have looked to see if Cliff's ever been interviewed about this since Cliff got Faith. Well, yeah, because he was a big part of the Festival of Light, wasn't he? But even at the time, that is Cliff mocking himself, being forced to mock himself. That's the whole thing. It's like these singers, they haven't got an idea in their head. They do exactly as they're told and their stuff is trash. 
Rocky's not respectable. It is stuff that's found in Soho streets. It belongs to people like Johnny Jackson. And nobody really in it believes in what they're doing. There's one little bit. So, And later on, we have the kind of star is born syndrome. We have Dixie Collins, who's as big as she can be and is now beginning to descend. There's one bit where she's talking to Bongo and he says that what he really wants is a red scooter. Not a motorbike, just a proper little motor scooter. That's really all he wants in the world. <laughs> we get this little slight sense of his innocence. I'm going to make a slightly tenuous point here, but I'm going to try and draw a direct line between, say, 1957. I know this is 1959, we're talking about but let's say 1957, so the, the, the outset of rock and roll, and 2017, because that's where we are. Now, in Espresso Bongo, you've got Gilbert Harding there and his panel of professionals, and they are analysing this new phenomenon. Now, is it reasonable to say that many of the viewers of Cosmorama would have been looking at this thinking, what on earth is the BBC wasting my time for and wasting my licensed payers' money for promoting this garbage? Why is this being given any kind of reverence and being spoken about in a news and current affairs setting? Now, as it happened... I actually had exactly the same reaction just the other day in 2017 because there on the front page of the BBC News app was a story, and I've got it in front of me just now, five standout moments of Love Island so far. I know nothing of Love Island. I believe it's an ITV2 show and it's some pish. Well, let's say pish on Jaffa Cakes, but it's, it's, it's my word. I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, okay, well, for a start, I'd be annoyed if I stumbled across that on a BBC page of any kind because it's promoting the opposition. Or so, even if it's in the entertainment section, it's got no place being in the BBC news site. And also, it's on the front page where there's supposed to be important stuff going on. There's supposed to be, like, news, like factual information. So part of me sort of thinking, can we actually draw a direct line from this? I'm not going to name who this was about because, you know, reasons. But I saw a piece in the Times once, and I think it was from about 1963. I'll talk about a particular disc jockey who was prominent at the time and about to become a lot more prominent the following year. And this piece actually was quite critical of the BBC for giving this guy a, a platform. It was basically a sort of retracing his roots. He was talking about where he was you know, brought up and so on. And this little phrase that was in this piece really tickled me. It said that he was presented as supposedly someone of some importance. Now, that to me strikes me as a generational thing. That I don't think that for probably large sections of the population now, if Nick Grimshaw had something important to say about, say, Donald Trump, and he said it on his radio show one morning, then that would probably end up on the BBC News and other news outlets as well. Should it? And can you actually draw a direct line from not just rock and roll happening, but also rock and roll being given such prominence in popular culture that you then end up, so 10 years later, with people like Mick Jagger being interviewed by David Frost about, say, Vietnam, for example. And 
you then have this sort of continuing pattern of people who are famous for selling albums being asked to give their opinions about all manner of different topics. I think there's a difference between allowing pop culture its place in serious discourse. So this fictional Cosmorama, it is really rock and roll. What's it all about? Let's talk to a churchman. Let's talk to a psychiatrist. And yeah, Bongo's manager manages to trick his way onto the show. Let's ask Mick Jagger what he thinks about Vietnam, thinks about society as it is. And then just going, oh my God, can you believe what happened on TV last night? Is a difference between asking Mick Jagger what he thinks about Vietnam and asking the Prime Minister what he or she thinks of something that's happened in some pop culture outlet, in something that's... Well, asking Tony Blair... Was it Tony Blair? Was it Gordon Brown about Deirdre? Yes, I was just thinking of that. Yes, yes, it was Blair. Yes, yeah. That kind of thing. It's one thing to dismiss people with power as being out of touch if they haven't heard of something that is popular and important to a number of people. It's something else when that's all you want to know about, and as soon as they start talking about the larger picture, you turn off. Oh, you don't know what's in the top ten. Okay, now we do. Yeah, that's fine. Don't care what you think about anything else. Maybe it's because I've been watching this movie. It's got this jaded view of everything. Well, I mean, you've got, in the thick of it, you have the existence of what they call the zeitgeist tapes. So all of the, the members of the, the cabinet are given this uh, VHS cassette and it's sort of like a half an hour cut of all the popular culture of that week which they're supposed to watch uh, so that they've got reference points if anybody was to throw a question at them about anything remotely popular well that happens in this movie dixie collins has come back from the u.s well she's meant to be an american performer herself but one who seems to be principally famous in britain and they ask her about bongo herbert and she panics okay yes i mean she's meant to be a popular singer herself but it's quite interesting that we sprung on her and she said i'd love another drink have you heard of bongo herbert does anybody have an american cigarette <laughs> but you said something there about like popular culture being popular with people but also of importance why, why is it necessarily of importance why do people want to know say i think this is about maybe 10 years ago or something it was a, a video that went out of the conservative party conference and they were sort of trying to show everybody how in touch all the senior politicians were so one of the questions that they asked it was sort of like a vox pops thing and one of the questions they asked was what was the last album that you bought and the, the answer that particularly sticks in mind was nicholas soames who never really sort of strikes you as somebody who's got his finger on the pulse of of popular culture and i'm not embellishing this too much he replied um uh um uh, uh, it was something by um, um, uh, Dido, and it was obviously he was just sort of scrambling around trying to think of, think of a name, think of a name, think of a name that isn't Ross Conway. <laughs> and honestly, I mean, why, why even should he have been put in that position in the first place? What's the matter? Yeah, he done? should be allowed to say it's not really. I don't have a huge music collection. It's not my thing. That should be. It's one thing we, you know, we say you know, how much is a pint of milk. I think that's a fair question to ask of any politician how much does this thing cost to most of the people most of the electorate how much what percentage of their income or their wealth is it going to take to do this but yeah i mean who's number one in the charts yeah fine if they know it well there you go full credit to them but there's out of touch and there's out of touch 
that there was an instance of AJP Taylor being a panellist on Question Time. A member of the public asked the question and he replied, I have no opinion about that whatsoever. I'd love to hear a political party leader actually say that about popular culture, to be honest. I'd love to hear somebody, or a leader of any party anywhere on the globe, actually just say, um, yeah, I don't really listen to modern music. Um, I don't go to the cinema. Have you asked me about economics? I've basically got some answers and some suggestions and the tools to be able to get the economy working so that we can produce popular entertainers and give them the platform that they need. But don't ask me my opinion about them because I don't know the first thing about them. Because you said it yourself, it's not just that rock and roll is popular. Plenty of things are popular and come and go and so on. It's the fact that it's so popular and so all-encompassing that in a way it sweeps away the music industry, in a way, to, to the point where, you know, like 10 years later, there you have Radio 1. You have the existence of an entire radio station, publicly funded, which has been created to give a platform for modern music and a way to sort of beat off the, the competition from the pirates and so on. But in a way that would have been unthinkable just 10 years earlier. So anyway, back to Expresso Bongo, because I got notes about how Rocky Sinners, Six Five Special is about nice middle-class people who talk properly. We actually get some kitchen sink burst into this when we see Bongo's home life and his parents. This is also the one of the problems, which is Cliff is, is not a cockney. <laughs> Is that the, I thought you was wonderful. <laughs> but he says it in this nice, clear-cut RP all the time. They would have been better off getting Tommy Steele or Joe Brown. Peter Cleo. Then again, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't actually believe Joe Brown as being sort of like a victim, could you? No, he's, too, he's always too cheerful, too jaunty. Well, it's also, you know, he knows what's going on. There's even a bit where Dixie says McKinnon, isn't it? That she asks, what's, what's the doorman's name again? Arthur, okay. So she walks out and says, goodbye, Arthur. He goes, you remember my name? She says, of course. After everything you've been served, even that looks like a cynical move to ingratiate oneself with the staff rather than a nice little touch of professionalism. Well, I am depressed. I see no joy in the world now. Do you want to mention the, the, the old film that you saw recently? Well, <laughs> yeah, Secrets of a Windmill Girl. I mentioned it earlier. It's 100%... Red in Tooth and Claw exploitation. And it has three different points of view that it shifts between. Not elegantly, I would say. I think maybe we can find a place to talk about this. Let's get three trashy exploitation films sometime. But it is, in a way, it's actually quite nice that Expresso Bongo exists. Because if you just looked at Rocky Sinners and Six Five Special then you, you could come to the conclusion that, yeah, this is just jumping on the bandwagon. It's obviously, it's, a, it's the end thing, it's a popular thing. Therefore, okay, let's get it on the big screen. There's plenty of instances of that happening over the past few decades where you know, a fad comes along and before you know it, you've got a, a big screen version of it. And as soon as that fad's passed, then off it goes. There's a reason that we plug this show as a popular culture podcast, not pop culture. That's partially to warn you about how pretentious we might occasionally be because we're treating these things as social documents well they are They're much telling us about the history of society at the time as they are just telling us about the history of pop well that's that's exactly what they are that's exactly what they are and also 
Espresso Bongo, I get the impression, and I might be wrong because obviously you know, none of us were there at the time, but I get the impression also with Espresso Bongo that in a way it's a, a nod to rock and roll not being a fad as well. So it's been around for long enough now that I think there is an assumption that it's here to stay and therefore it's worthy of a critical eye to look behind the facade and say, right, this is actually what goes on here. But it wasn't as if Expresso Bongo caused the rock and roll ball to come crashing down around itself. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't some massive expose that, that led to sales plummeting or anything like that. But is that, is that fair by 59? You know, rock and roll is not going to go anywhere anytime soon. I think people who have their eye on the ball know that. I think this movie allows for both points of view. If rock and roll had just fizzled out, this would still be a valuable film to watch and, and would be an explanation of why it might have fizzled out and in a way it did fizzle a little that funny little period after the initial shock and before the Beatles come that's going to be something we'll talk about next time on Jaffa Gex of Proust when we look at some British rock movies of the early 60s we normally do follow reading on the show so obviously we've mentioned all three of the films can we actually mention what the films are that we're going to do next time if people want to see them in advance that's a good idea Live It Up, also known as Sing and Swing. What a Crazy World. I don't think that has another title. And It's Trad Dad, which also had another title in the US, and I can't remember for the life of me what it is. Ring a Ding Rhythm. <laughs> that sounds wonderfully backward. Oh, but can I just point out as well that people who liked It's Trad Dad also apparently liked The Bed Sitting Room. Well, Richard Lester. And they also like the return of the Musketeers. Yeah, well, Richard Lester's going to be a massive foreshadowing of what's to come, but don't worry, the week after we do another set of rock movies, we'll do something that isn't all about long-haired yobos with T-chest basses. You were referencing a book by Matthew Sweet, another one as well. Or Shepherd and Babel. We've referenced that in pretty much anything we talk about. There'll be something in there that we've cribbed. Shepherd and Babylon by Matthew Sweet. Also, if you, can, if you know somebody who has a recording of it and can get hold of it for you, British B-movies, truly, madly, cheaply. One of the sacred texts of Jaffadom. And that's presented by Matthew Sweet as well. So That was on BBC Four ten years ago. Can I just point out, because I just actually received this tweet. Actually, well, I came in yesterday, but I hadn't seen it until just now. Can I just point out that in response to our latest Jaffa Kick jukebox, Lapscat has tweeted, when it comes to popular music, Gary is a bit like those old ladies wandering around art galleries wittering, I know what I like. Yeah, I'll give you that, actually. Yeah, that's, that's perfectly fair. Where would people find Jaffa Kick Jukebox if they were so minded? Mixcloud.com slash sitcom club, confusingly enough. Because we set up the account for Mixcloud long, long ago when we were still doing the sitcom club. Sitcom club, which might come back for the odd special before the end of the year. We've got a couple of ideas, yes. So in the meantime, if you've got anything at all for us, you can find us. We're on Facebook, Jaffa Kicks for Proust. You can tweet us, Jaffas for Proust. You can email us, feedback at sitcomclub.com. And, of course, we're part of the podnose.com network. There's all manner of other podcasts available on podnose.com right now. Until next time, I've been Tilted Isa. I've been Gary Roger. And this has been Jaffa Kicks for Proust. <laughs>